Very excited to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Darius, great to have you back. Jack, it is a pleasure to be back, man. I love the show. You've been cranking out some awesome content, my friend. Thank you, Darius. The pleasure is all mine. I really want to ask you, how are you seeing things? You know, we're filming this on March 22nd. I mean, there, there are so many things. The market is going all over the place. Options expiry, gyrating up, gyrating down. We've got uh, monetary tightening. You know, Now the Fed funds rate is at 25 basis points. Last week was the FOMC meeting. We've got stuff going on in Russia, Ukraine, and China. How are you making how are you making sense of it all, Darius? What are you, what are the risk and rewards that you see in markets? Yo, that's a great question, Jack. So let me start by summarizing our views and summarizing them across durations, because obviously we have different investors listening with different time frames and and different asset classes and products that they trade. Um, so I'll start from the longest duration um, uh, for you know furthest out, you know, kind of you know, twelve to twelve months or so from now. We do believe the U.S. economy is slowing to a below-trend growth state. Um, I think a recession is is a, high, a reasonable probability. It's very early in that process of assessing that kind of risk, so it's unclear whether or not we will wind up in a recession. I can see several indicators starting to point in that direction. So, if you're thinking about kind of when that might land on the on the calendar, first half of 2023 would be um, that risk. Um, from a medium-term perspective, we think the growth slowdown uh, in the U.S. and global economies. Is not something that's been priced into asset markets yet. And quite frankly, it hasn't had to be priced in asset markets yet, uh, mostly as a function of it having not materialized yet. I mean, growth is still, if you look at it from a, a coincident to lagging indicator perspective, is extremely robust, particularly in the US and Europe. Uh, when you look at it on a leading indicator basis, however, um, they're obviously continuing to slow and, and getting to some pretty uh, bombed out levels if you think about stuff like consumer and business confidence. So um, our view from a medium term perspective is that consensus will wake up to a growth slowdown that is materializing and, and, and ever-present uh, by the middle of this year. Uh, our model specifically points to kind of the May, June, July timeframe as when that process will really start to be uh, observed in the data. And so that is the big shooter drop that is still in front of us as it relates to market pricing and uh, more volatility. But uh, the last one from a, from a short-term perspective, and, and, and who knows how long short-term might last in these crazy markets, um, but you know, we have a compendium of indicators that we look at uh, from, a, you know, from a short-term risk management perspective you know, that's sort of separate and apart from our, our fundamental views, and those indicators are, are, are quite positive. Um, you know, one of those indicators we call our cross-asset correction risk indicator, um, it just came out of a sort of what we call our consensus fear zone, which is basically everybody's bearish. And typically when we, you know, roll out of that consensus fear zone, what tends to happen, I mean, this is, you know, rolling out a sample back test going back to decades, multiple decades, um, that tends to be a bicycle, you know, tends to be a fairly durable bottom um, in the stock market, you know, from a medium term perspective. So uh, we definitely want to respect that. Another signal that we're looking at is through the lens of our crowding analysis, where we kind of show the relationship between the deviation in skew and the deviation in volatility risk premium across most assets. And you know, when you look at U.S. equities, risk assets, you know, global equities, the preponderance of those exposures, you know, across the kind of spectrum of risk, um, they're all kind of in the in the quadrant or in the, in, the, in a state in a in a derivative market state that tends to suggest that it won't it doesn't pay to continue shorting these types of exposures. Um, you're not getting paid to take those shorts of anything. Um, the big risk is to the upside um, in those in that respect. So, you know, short term, you know, I wouldn't necessarily we're bullish because I, I think that would be a misnomer. I, I don't think we're ever going to be bullish until the Fed pivots dovishly. And that's unlikely to happen in any time over the next few quarters. But certainly could see some more upside risk in markets over the very near term 
Uh, but medium term, long term, I mean, the, the, the Fed put is much, much lower than I think the average investor realizes. So everyone's bearish and you think that they have a reason to be bearish, uh, medium term, long term outlook, you are bearish. But because everyone is bearish in the short term, that gives a lot of potential pop in the market if people have to take off of their hedges, right? Yeah, they absolutely did. And we saw that with uh, last week in the FOMC meeting. Uh, that was the March 16th FOMC meeting. Yep. Um, so we, you know, last Friday with operations expiry for index options, um, we saw about a third of, of, of all index gamma expire. Um, obviously, mostly put options expire. And that was what catalyzed that kind of process of the Vanna and Charm flows into last Friday's OPEX. And then the sort of, you know, relief that we're getting here this week is a function of all that, 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 that sort of, uh, you know, that put exposure, that short put exposure on the dealer balance sheets, you know, kind of uh, evaporating really, to, for lack of a better word. Um, and really perpetuating markets higher. And, the, you know, kind of this week was always going to be extremely critical from a risk management perspective because we knew that was going to happen. But will we see investors rush to put on those hedges again um, this week and next week, you know, kind of, you know, in the absence of, you know, potentially kind of feeling like they're swimming naked? Um, we have not seen that rush to put on those hedges. And part of the reason we have not seen that is because the geopolitical situation is not getting any worse um, we're starting to see some rifts in Europe as it relates to the response and sanctions terms to Putin's aggression in Ukraine. But also the growth dynamic is not yet you know, slowing at a pace that would indicate there's a tremendous amount of downside risk for the market over the near term. So what I'm saying in, in so many words is the lack of a bearish, a fresh bearish catalyst or a series of fresh bearish catalysts has suddenly become a bull catalyst in the context of that extended bearish position. That makes sense. Darius, the last time we spoke in January, it seems like it was, you know, a year ago. No, right. What what uh since then has played out pretty much exactly as you predicted, as as you foresaw the probabilities, and what has surprised you the most? Yeah, great question. So I think we you and I were we, we recorded in late December. Um, you know, back then we had a view that look, the Fed, uh, both the monetary and fiscal authority, because I don't think that I think now it's pretty clear that we're not getting any fiscal stimulus in the US, but I do believe there was a healthy debate back in Q4 whether or not we were going to get incremental fiscal stimulus in the U.S. We were very much in the uh, view, we very much had the view that, that we would not see incremental fiscal stimulus. We also had the view that the Fed would be tighter than uh, consensus expects. Um, both of those dynamics have really played out in spades. If anything, I would argue the Fed's been even more hawkish um, than, we would have, um, than we would have thought in terms of their policy rate guidance, you know, particularly this most recent uh, dot plot projections. Prior to that, they're probably in line with what we thought. But this most recent dot plot projection is, is quite hawkish if you think about the two-year out dot, you know, finally going into restrictive territory. It's the first time we've seen that since uh, 2018, and we all know how that ended. So that certainly has gone along uh, according to plan. But what has not gone along according to plan, and you know, I'll be the first person to take the uh, take the heat for this because there's certainly been a chorus of us bond bulls out there. But I'm I'm happy to wear the wear the um, kind of the dunce hat for now. Uh, you know, we just got that wrong. I mean, quite frankly, the bond market response, and we can unpack this. Um, I'm sure you're going to want to for the listeners, but you know, the bond market response to the cyclical deceleration in the economy, the confluence of the Fed tightening into that cyclical deceleration in the economy has not gone according to plan. Uh, historically speaking, that's been a very, very positive, um, you know, sort of uh, environment for markets or for bond market. If you look at the long bond uh, futures, you know, we back test everything through the lens of our, our great asset market, you know, back test process uh, where we're kind of thinking about the economy through the lens of growth, the change in growth, the change in inflation, all these different dynamics on the policy side as well. And when growth's slowing, you know, you tend to have an 11% annualized return in bonds, you know, bond prices. Um, when growth slowing and the Fed's hiking rates into that slowdown, you know, that return dips down a little bit, but it's still a plus nine 
and when the Fed is, um, you know, kind of slowing, when the growth is slowing and the Fed is uh, doing quantitative tightening, it's still a plus nine. Um, we've obviously gotten the opposite of plus 11 to plus nine um, in terms of that range on bond prices. And so it's telling you that there's something else that's being priced into, um, into, into the long end of the treasury curve. And my, my, expect, my, my view on that um, is still developing, but I think one thing that is important to call out here is the sort of breakout in structural inflation expectations in Europe. Um, if you look at something like the five-year, five-year forward uh, euro inflation swap rate, that number is up at like 220, just high of 220 basis points or 2.2%. Um, that's the highest level we've seen since 2014. And so that's telling you, so, you know, I'll, I'll beat you to your own question. You're going to say, hey, what's the five-year, five-year forward inflation swap rate? Uh, you're really good at asking questions to simplify things. That's looking at the market's expectation for inflation, for the average inflation rate, five years after uh, uh, the next five years. So kind of like the, the second half of the, the, the four or 10 year window, if you will. And so that's so like that, 2027 to 2032. Bingo. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the fact that the market is saying, hey, look, these structural long term inflation expectations in Europe are not only rising they're I mean, they're, they're breaking off the top of the chart. And so to me, that is saying, hey, look, there's going to be a fiscal response to the energy and defense crises in Europe. Um, that fiscal response is likely to catalyze some, you know, longer-term infrastructure development, both you know, in the oil and gas front, but also in the terms of you know, reshoring some of the manufacturing capacity, you know, to the extent that you know, China and Russia try to, you know, kind of, you know, uh, marry themselves together, if you will, in, the, in, the, in this longer-term project. So, you know, I think that's what the market is telling you is that, hey, look, there's going to be a lot more inflation in Europe over the longer term than we're used to. And this is very different than, you know, the ECB policy setting, which is perpetually in negative territory. If you think about the main refinancing rate, you think about German boons barely being, you know, positive yielding, you know, for an extended period of time. If you reprice that entire sovereign debt curve higher, well, guess what? You have to reprice the entire U.S. sovereign debt curve higher. And as a function of that, the entire global sovereign debt curve higher in terms of interest rates. And so I think that's part of what's happening in the Treasury market right now that's preventing the normal response of the bond prices to uh, the Fed tightening into an economic slowdown, um, but eventually we do believe that economic slowdown will come will come home to roost in, in bond prices and bond yields, and so you know we're content to maintain that maintain that view. So you talk about uh, long term inflation expectations. Even though we had breakaway inflation in 2021, bonds U.S. bonds actually had a, a bull market because long term inflation expectations stayed relatively anchored. You're saying now. The fact that those long-term inflation expectations are breaking out of a range, particularly in Europe, indicate fears, worries that we would enter not just a cyclical period of inflation, not just a, a spout of inflation, but a, a long-term uh, secular inflation, which of course is like anathema to, to the bond market. I take it, given that you still are, are into bonds, that you, you don't believe that we are headed for secular inflation. When I hear something like secular inflation... You know, I think the average investor can go somewhere between like a range of like the 1940s or 1970s to something that maybe looks more like kind of the late 60s or the mid 2000s. I mean, that's a wide range of inflation outcomes. They're all inflationary, but that's a pretty wide range. I mean, we, we built a model um, here at 42 Macro uh, called our secular inflation model. It's a dynamic factor model that looks at 16 sort of, you know, core macroeconomic variables um, that code of that, you know, that all have a a high I co-integration or correlation with inflation over multiple decades. And that model is suggesting that, you know, the stationary mean or the average of inflation should be somewhere around or somewhere in the range of 2.5 to 3% in this in this decade, in this current decade. 
Um, that's, you know, roughly, you know, 50 to 100 basis points higher than it was, um, you know, kind of in the prior decade. So that's a meaningful shift higher. I mean, if you think all things being equal, and obviously not everything's equal, but all things being equal, you should think bond yields should be somewhere between 50 to 100 basis points higher on average in this current decade, right? And so that's kind of like, that's our, that's our, that's what our models view on the, the kind of longer term inflation dynamics. Now, that doesn't mean that bonds have to sell, go down in price every day for the next decade because inflation is going to be higher in this decade. Obviously, bonds are still going to have, um, you know, sort of, they're still going to have to deal with their cyclical dynamics, you know, growth accelerating, growth slowing, inflation accelerating, inflation slowing, Fed cutting rates, Fed hiking rates. All those cyclical dynamics will continue to drive the boat from a medium term perspective. Um, but just this longer term perspective, I think we were in this moment here in the first kind of part of 2021, or sorry, part of 2022, where the entire bond market had to reprice higher in yield terms, lower in price terms to acknowledge everything I just said about these changing inflation dynamics, not just in the US, but also in Europe. Mm. Let's go back to, to January. You were viewing bonds. You know, people view bonds as a way to hedge equity risk when oh, yeah. uh, equities go down. Bonds go up, meaning the prices go up and the yields go down. In a sense that you were looking for an equity hedge and that you had a risk-off period, you were completely right. You you nailed that. But like so many other investors, you know, relying on bonds as a hedge against equities, bonds just weren't there. What does it mean, Darius? If you know, we put up a chart of the S and P 500 relative to TLT, the fact that they went down together, that's really not supposed to happen. What does that mean to you? Does it indicate? anything uh, about the period of inflation that we're in? Yeah, great question. So uh, going back to the uh, secular inflation analysis that we're talking about and the models that we built, um, the, you know, the, when you go back and you sort of study the, the covariance between bond prices and stock prices, um, what you find is what's pretty clear and evident in the data is that when inflation, headline inflation, and then again, I'm using the U.S. as a, as a sample here, when headline inflation is, is, is north of 5% and persistently north of 5%, Bonds and stocks tend to have a, a positive correlation. Now, what's special about five percent? I have no idea. I, you know, I'd be the first to tell you that it's just an empirical observation rather than I think an economic theory. Uh, but for whatever reason, it tends to be a positive correlation uh, between long bond prices and, and stock prices. That correlation, that positive correlation, really broke down in the late '90s um, as you know, kind of partially as a function of the Fed getting inflation under control and the market really kind of believing that in longer-term inflation expectations. But I also think another thing happened in the late 90s that is kind of under under discussed as it relates to, um, you know, the current Fed regime or at least the, the most recent Fed regime we're in. I think right now we're in a different Fed regime. Um, and the most recent Fed regime that we're in was one that were deflation and the financialization of the economy and ultimately the feedback loop between the financial markets and the economy was the main priority of the Fed, um, you know, kind of for, because inflation was no longer an issue. And we have these sort of extended, elongated economic cycles as a function of inflation no longer being an issue. And so that's kind of that all kind of came to fruition with the Fed bailout of long-term capital management um, after, quote unquote, the, or after, after coincidentally the Russian default <laughs> in 1998. So um, just keep that, um, keep that, go back and study that if you haven't uh, really studied that part of history, because I do believe it's really important. Um, but as it relates to kind of where we are today in this inverse or correlation between bonds and stock prices or lack thereof. Well, guess what? We have inflation at eight percent, or you know, headed towards eight percent, or you know, just shy of eight percent. Could be on its way to nine percent, maybe even ten percent, um, if we see a big rebound in energy prices from here. Um, we're certainly positioned for that. It's very unlikely we see that inverse core, core, you know, that inverse correlation really start to pick up until that inflation momentum wanes, until 
the sort of you know view until until we see a peak in European policy rate expectations. And you're not going to see a peak in European policy rate expectations until inflation peaks in Europe, um, which we have that I think is a second quarter event, or until growth slow, the growth slowdown in Europe really starts to materialize and and shows up in, in kind of the coincident to, to lagging indicators. And that's something that we expect to be in uh, Q3, expect to see in Q3. So if bonds can't be relied on as a way to hedge equity risk for, for at least a, a few months, as you say, then what can where can investors find safety? Where can they buy something that will go up when stocks go down? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, one of the ways we've taken advantage of that is kind of looking, targeting the, the middle, the medium term, like VIX futures, uh, you know, sort of, Obviously, frontline VIX has been extremely elevated, not only relative to realize, but also relative to uh, longer dated contracts. There's been a, a real backwardation, persistent backwardation in VIX, or not persistent, but it's, it's certainly um, you know, kind of trended thus far throughout the year. So that's been a place to go. Um, obviously, you know, part of the reason we're seeing uh, stocks declines in this particular uh, window is we were seeing kind of commodity price spikes, commodity price shortages. So you know, for, you know, for a while there, the you know, crude oil had become the new VIX. Right, you know, like, um, and you yes. know, or sort, you know, different pockets of the commodity space. So um, that was another way to go. But I mean, I, 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 you know, say this very simply. Like, depends if you're a retail investor or institutional investor, because the answer to those questions are very different. Institutional investors obviously have to maintain, um, you know, kind of fully allocated position portfolios. And so within those kinds of portfolios, you're going to want to be targeting defensive sectors and style factors in the equity market. You're going to be reining in your credit risk. Um, from in terms of your fixed income portfolio, you want to be going kind of out on duration, reining up your credit risk. That tends to be kind of how you take advantage of um, you know financial market volatility um, as a professional investor. Um, obviously, if you're a currency trader, bu- buying dollars, buying gold, buying Japanese yen and Swiss franc are the kind of ways to go there. Um, if you're a retail investor, the simplest thing to do is do less of what you were doing in the last couple of years, i.e., raise cash. I mean, we're coming out of a very aggressive, you know to the upside, very positive um, economic environment that perpetuated some very bubbly charts. I mean, we were talking about this, you know, I was up with your colleague, uh, your former colleague, Ed Harrison, uh, talking about this in Real Vision in the fall of 2020 and said, hey, look, man, there's about to be five things happening um, that almost never happen at the same time. You're going to have growth accelerating, you're going to have inflation accelerating, you have corporate profits accelerating at the Fed, easing aggressively, you have fiscal policy easing aggressively. There have been like 10 quarters since 1960 where all five of those things are happening at the same time. And obviously, those are some of the best quarters in, in financial market history if you think about the stock market returns and stuff like that. We got two of those quarters in the first half of 2021. And so obviously, all the charts that you know started to really break out in November um, on the vaccine news and the unwind of the you know election hedging, you know all that stuff perpetuated some aggressive bull market breakouts in pretty much everything from crypto to NFT to Kathy Wood stocks to you know, energy stock to everything. Everything was a gigantic bubble. Well, guess what? All five of those things are going in the reverse direction and certainly will be headed in the reverse direction by the time we get into um, the second half of this year. So if you ex- got a bubble across pretty much every, you know, liquid uh, risk asset class and inclu- even in liquid asset classes, obviously we've got a housing bubble as well out of that. You know, we got bubbles galore as a function of those dynamics. Well, guess what happens when those dynamics go in reverse? You know, a couple stats for you, right? Like when the S and P five hundred is is slowing, um, you know, as so as slow as as fast as we expect it to slow in the back half of the year. You, again, you're talking about a twenty, uh, just shy of twenty percent annualized uh, uh, decline um, in terms of S and P. But that's roughly around minus forty percent for something like S and P five hundred high beta index. I mean, you're talking about orders of magnitude of that for crypto. So 
it's going to be a tough, challenging market for a lot of investors to, 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 to trade because I don't think the average person does enough work to understand that a lot of those big cyclical factors are going to be moving in the wrong direction and pretty much moving in the wrong direction for an extended period of time. And could you just uh, list again those five factors? You listed them in 2020, but now that they're in reverse, what are they again? Yeah, so uh, so in 2020, uh, we're talking about this. This is October, November 2020. We're saying, hey, growth's going to be accelerating. Inflation will be accelerating. Corporate profit growth will be accelerating. So three cyclical factors that are positive for various segments and sectors of the market. But then you also have you know very aggressive monetary easing and very aggressive fiscal easing. So it's like, man, like the Fed and the, the Treasury are being are pro-cyclically stimulating into a, a cyclical recovery. Well, now the Fed and the Treasury are pro-cyclically tightening into a cyclical slowdown. So the Fed is going to remain actively engaged in tightening monetary policy for an extended period of time. And the only thing that's going to cause them to pivot is financial conditions. Financial conditions become so tight that the obvious conclusion is that inflation is, is very clearly going to decelerate and decelerate very rapidly. And that, in our opinion, is, is probably a Q3, Q4 event. And how bad do you think things have to get? How much do financial conditions have to tighten? How wide do credit spreads have to get? How much lower does the stock market have to go before the Federal Reserve has another you know, Powell pivot moment? So I'll, I'll start with the answer, the short answer, which is our model suggests somewhere around 30% peak to trough decline in the S&P 500. Um, and this is when we get to that that number in a variety of ways. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to be quick here. So from a business cycle perspective. Um, let's start by saying, hey, look, the Fed is starting to hike interest rates um, as deep into the business cycle as it ever has. You know, if you think about it, looking at it through the lens of uh, the level of the unemployment rate, the Fed has never lifted off its, its monetary policy rate or the Fed funds rate uh, with the unemployment rate as low as it's ever been. It's data going as far back as we can get the data for both the unemployment rate and the Fed funds rate. Um, we've never seen the yield curve as, as, as narrow as, as, as we have seen if you look at tens twos uh, prior to liftoff. So, both by from a financial market perspective, but also from a realized labor market perspective, the Fed is getting starting this process of pulling back the punch bowl way too late. They should have started over a year ago, right? As soon as they passed that set, that last uh, the Biden fiscal spending program, the Fed should have said, "Oh no, wait, this is going to overly heat, uh, overheat the economy. Let's start pulling back on 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 on, um, on stimulus." Nope, they waited a whole extra year, <laughs> and guess what? Now we have to deal with it as investors. Um, so. Kind of answering your question in terms of where is the Fed put, you know, there's kind of three there's kind of three main indicators we look at to kind of gauge financial market risk, like or sort of not even financial market risk, uh, main indicators to gauge kind of like the size of the drawdown we could see in any given sort of uh, market market event. Um, there's the business cycle. We look at it that through the lens of the conference board uh, labor differential index that kind of is a proxy for how good is the labor market relative to, to or how good are labor market expectations relative to. Uh, how good or, or, how, or how fast is it likely to deteriorate? So basically, we're coming off a cycle peak in that number. There have been eight or nine cycle peaks since the 1960s in this indicator, and every single one has coincided with a, a big drawdown in the stock market, and the median drawdown is minus 35%. So that's number one, minus 35%. Number two- and Sorry, the catalyst for that is is monetary tightening? No, the catalyst for that is the, the labor market cycle, the business cycle slowing. Um, oh. So we're already slowing in, that, in the terms of that indicator. Um, obviously, you need to slow a lot more than off the cycle peak to really kind of kick things going and from an asset market response perspective. But we're certainly underway. I mean, we're, we're, we're very clearly slowing off the cycle peak from the perspective of the labor market, um, from the perspective of positioning. You know, we look at um, household equity ownership relative to overall net worth, and that ratio is at an all-time high of, you know, just shy of 30%. You know, so we're, you know, we're peaking 
at just shy of 30%. When we get the Q1 data, obviously the number is going to be off of that all-time high because the number was through Q4. Um, and, you know, there have been, I want to say 16, no, no, there have been 19 of these cycle peaks since going back to the 1940s in this particular indicator. And the median S&P 500 drawdown off that cycle peak is minus 22%. Um, so you've got minus 35%, minus 22%. And then the last one, um, if you look at it through the lens of valuation, um, you, you take the S&P 500's earnings yield, so the earnings divided by the price, and then subtract headline CPI, so you get the real earnings yield. Um, you could also do this with you know consumer confidence, uh, inflation expectations. You get to the same answer. Um, you know whether you get to the, whether you use realized headline CPI or whether you use consumer confidence is irrelevant. The, what is relevant is the fact that we're as negative as we've ever been in this particular indicator. And historically, whenever we've kind of you know inverted in this indicator or gone negative, um, so to speak, um, the median drawdown in the S and P has been forty one percent, forty one percent. And so we're negative in the money's forty one percent category. We're rolling off an all-time high in the minus 22% category, and we we're very clearly rolling off an all-time high in the minus 35% category. So if you look at it through, again, business cycle, positioning, valuation tells you that there's a lot of market risk in this market. And oh, by the way, this is the Federal Reserve doesn't care. They do not care. Inflation is the main priority. This episode is brought to you by BCB Group, Europe's leading provider of crypto-friendly business banking for institutions in the crypto space. They also provide trading services, allowing you to trade FX and cryptocurrency quickly and at scale. They specialize in efficient execution of large orders in illiquid markets. So if you are an institution looking to make high volume trades, you need to check out BCB Group because a great trade idea is worth nothing if you can't execute it. And that is exactly what BCB Group helps you to do. Their mission is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. So if you want to take control of your digital assets, please check them out at bcbgroup.com slash jack. That's bcbgroup.com slash jack. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Yes. Uh, Darius, very interesting what you said about the real earnings yield for the S&P 500, which you said was at uh, an all-time low or close to an all-time low. The, what about the real earnings yield for, let's say, the 30-year U.S. Treasury yield? If you take the 30-year the yield, that's, I don't know, 2.3%, 2.4%, and you subtract 7.9%, that's a pretty low number. And it, it, you know, it might be an all-time low. What, what does that suggest about bond yields? So, you know, is there a drawdown that you see um, when real bond yields are that, this low? Well, that's a good question. I'd have to answer that question for you. Uh, I would imagine, yes, the, 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 yeah, you're probably right. Like Anytime you have uh, such a negative starting valuation, if you look at it on a long enough time horizon forward, you tend to have negative uh, adverse consequences in markets. So I would imagine it's pretty bad as well. Although, but again, you still have the cyclical component of bonds, right? Unless, you know, going back to, unless you're talking about isolating the back test to the 1970s, which you could in theory, if you wanted to, you're not going to get um, that sort of, um, you know, kind of dual, you know, uh, simultaneous declines in stocks and bonds um, outside of that, uh, that time horizon. Darius, so I want to ask you about gold because for a long time, you know, over the past year or so, I've been asking you about gold, sort of trying to tee you up to to say gold is uh you know is going to break out because you always said something that I thought would be coincident with a, with a, a constructive take on gold, but you always you know resisted me, Darius. You you never uh, you always said ah gold I like it, but you know not not this juncture and you you know, definitely avoided uh, a lot of pain in the gold market because twenty twenty one like the latter half of 2020, was kind of a disaster for gold. But it's my understanding, Darius, that finally, at last, you now see you've taken a shining to gold. Tell us why why that's the case. Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's, it's consistent with our views on the cyclical aspects of the economy. 
Um, gold tends to be do really well when you're having a growth slowdown. I mean, the, the sort of annualized expect. In fact, when when growth's slowing, cyclically, our i.e. you're in inflation or deflation from the perspective of our great asset market uh, framework. You know, growth is one of the best places to be. I um, mean, it's you know I think about a ten or eleven percent annualized return um, in in those regimes. Um, gold also tends to do quite well when the Fed is is tightening into the slowdown. Gold has a very similar return profile as a long bond. Um, and so obviously with the long bond kind of under siege here, just as a function of one, the change in Europe, longer term European inflation expectations and, and obviously the repricing of sovereign debt in Europe, you know, bonds are kind of doing their own thing right now that eventually I think they'll recouple uh, to the gold price chart and, and ultimately we'll see a lot more uh, positive performance in those types of defensive assets kind of as we progress throughout the year. But for now, um, we're definitely very positive on gold. And what about Bitcoin, Darius? You know, it might seem counterintuitive because, oh, Bitcoin benefits so much from the Fed's balance sheet and all these things. But historically, you know, Bitcoin actually, the, the epic bull run of 2016, 2017 was during a, a quantitative tightening cycle as well as a rate hike cycle. So what does sort of the, the your back test say about the risk reward for Bitcoin at, at this juncture? And, you know, what are you thinking about that? As well as you can also talk about uh, other uh, digital assets, maybe. So uh, so the, the first thing I'll say is 2016, 2017, growth was accelerating both domestically and globally the entire time. I mean, the global economy, um, from a leading indicator perspective, bottomed in Q1 of 2016. And I think the U.S. economy bottomed in Q2 of 2016. So that massive bull run we saw in, in Bitcoin was really a function of the growth dynamic accelerating. And, and again, this is consistent with all our back tests. It's not is whether the Fed is tightening or easing, it's whether they're tightening or easing into cyclical accelerations or cyclical decelerations. And so for something like Bitcoin, I mean, the annualized return on Bitcoin, when the Fed is tightening into a Goldilocks or reflation regime, is still going to be quite positive. I mean, probably triple digits positive. Um, I would have confirmed that with you, uh, with your listener after the, the, the show. But um, I imagine it's probably triple digits positive in so much that when the Fed is tightening into a slowdown, you know, you're probably somewhere very high double digits on a negative basis as well. So and that's kind of the setup we, we, we you know, we are, we are still in. Right. I mean, I, I mentioned at the onset of the show, you know, kind of from a very near term perspective, there's really no more bad news to shock Bitcoin below you know 40,000 or shock the S&P below 4100 or, you know, kind of things of that nature in the very near term. Um, over the medium term, obviously, we spent the last, you know, kind of 45 minutes talking about the, you know, kind of negative cyclical and structural aspects to this market. Um, from a Bitcoin perspective, in the absence of negative news, then you have to understand that, hey, look, man, there's a lot of speculation in this asset class. There's a lot of people chomping at the bit to buy what they believe is a cheap Bitcoin price chart. Um, I don't want to fight that, you know, certainly in the context of CAC reequity exiting its consensus fear zone in the context of the chronic analysis we cited at the onset of this discussion. I'm not going to, I certainly don't want to fight that. Um, if you look at, you know, kind of Bitcoin, Ethereum price charts to begin with, they didn't make new lows going out off of January, right? Like they basically, they held in those January lows and have been consolidating and they look like they either want to break down a lot or break out a lot. And in the context of not having a lot of negative news for the next few weeks or even a couple of months, potentially, um, I would imagine that the, the probability of breaking out a lot is, is higher than the probability of breaking down a lot. So again, I, I you know, we, we're not long or short crypto at this particular juncture. I just assumed, I tweeted that this, this morning that, you know, if, if we do see a breakout, because obviously you have the Ethereum 2.0 catalyst hanging out there as a potential positive fire for crypto, you got, um, you know, Bitcoin conference down here in Miami uh, in a few weeks, like there's going to be some positive kind of catalysts, you know, just from a headline perspective that can get you those price, gets you some positive price momentum. And I just assume be the second person into that trade, right? You know, this is not the kind of economic or market environment where you want to be taking a lot of aggressive bets, as I mentioned. 
those five factors are moving in the wrong direction, or at least one of four of the five. Right now, inflation is still going up, obviously, um, but eventually, by the middle of the next, by the middle of this year, inflation will be going down. This is not the kind of time to be, hey, let me go take a ten percent position in some altcoin. That's just this is just not. I do believe you can selectively kind of trade, you know, risk assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum to the long side if you get some confirmation. That's a big if. Um, it may come, it may not come. I just assume wait to see that that confirmation come though. Darius, what about oil? I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, oil and other commodities trade very poorly during a cyclical slowdown like the the type that we're in and like the type that you forecast for you know the next few months, if not if not year. But oil has actually been on fire, and it's my understanding that you're actually somewhat constructive on oil at this time. To to what degree does that have to do? Are you kind of you know? Uh, you know, a student knows all the rules, but a master knows when to accept the rules, uh, you know, make exceptions, essentially. To what degree are you sort of saying, okay, my macro model, my back, my back tests say this, but just what's going on in Russia, Ukraine and the supply dynamics, you got to have some exposure to oil. What, you know, what are you sort of thinking here? Yeah, no. So, I mean, we're still in stagflation and, and stagflation or what we call inflation in, in our grid framework, um, you know, is a positive uh, dynamic or positive um, uh, regime for oil, you know, particularly when you're you know, having these sort of big inflation shocks and commodity price shocks. We saw that in all three recessions in the 1970s. We saw it obviously in 2008 in the global financial crisis where energy prices, you know, oil, uh, energy stocks, you know, did well um, in, the, in, in the recessions, like in the actual recessions as a function of, you know, kind of the supply demand imbalances. Um, you know, I, and I don't want to get too far over my ski tips talking about supply demand because that's not something I spent a tremendous amount of time or have the bandwidth to focus on. You know, my, 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 my core, you know, competency, my bailiwick is, understanding the growth, inflation, and policy cycles, understanding positioning, understanding changes in derivative markets that, you know, create opportunities in financial markets. And, you know, one of those things we saw, hey, look, we saw an opportunity to, to get long crude oil and, 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 and get long of, you know, yeah, get long crude oil, get long of energy stocks and take advantage of the, you know, kind of big drawdown we saw um, recently. You know, we, we, we sold it really well, actually. We, we bought it in January as a counter cyclical hedge to some of our equity exposure. It worked out. It paid off really well. Looked like a 30 something percent gain in a matter of weeks. Uh, sold off, bought it back. Hey, hey look, man, we're, we'll give it another go. And we're going to keep giving it another go, you know, outside of the context of our broader kind of grid asset market process. Because again, we do believe that, you know, there are opportunities at times to kind of, you know, become the master and say, hey, look, there's an opportunity. The market's giving us a real shot here. You know, oil below $100 a barrel is a, is a, is a mispricing relative to the, you know, the kind of the structural supply demand imbalances that we all kind of. You know, come to uh, learn as a function of you know really smart people in your program and other programs kind of teaching us those dynamics. I'm not going to fight that in so much that I'm not going to overstay my welcome. Um, it's probably would be, would be the last time we're going to be long oil if we if we sell it from here. Hmm. Yeah, I I think when you got back into oil, I think you pretty much nailed the bottom of market. <laughs> if someone's listening now and hearing your your macro framework, your outlook on risk on a cyclical slowdown, people say, okay, I'm going to get 50% in cash, 50% gold. Uh, why might that be you know, not the best allocation and, and why, you know, as you look at equity market, why, why do you own stocks at all? And what pockets of the, of the stock market are, do you, are you see as greater risk reward than others? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you wanted your portfolio to reflect like a 0.5 beta to the gold price, then that would be a perfect allocation, right? <laughs> like if you're like, again, the, the I don't really have a frame of reference to say that is a good or bad portfolio. It's not a portfolio. It's just a 0.5 beta to the gold price if that was your 
your setup. Um, maybe someone wants that. Uh, maybe that's a good idea for someone. I don't think it's a good idea for most people. It's certainly not a good idea for you know institutional money managers. You know, it's probably half of our clients. So I'm never going to recommend anything that looks like that. Um, but I, I do believe there's an opportunity here. Like as we get further in the year, and the liquidity dynamics continue to get tighter and tighter and tighter, more and more assets are going to find it very difficult to appreciate in price. I mean, that's just what it is. I mean, this is how the market cycle works. You know, when the liquidity spigot is open, you know, you can go buy like, I don't know, uh, Kuwaiti bonds, you know, <laughs> like a Tanzanian, you know, currency, you know, like that, those kinds of things go up in price when the liquidity spigot's on and those things go down in price a lot when it gets turned off. And, and as long as it stays turned off, you start to lose pockets of the market. Liquidity dries up at the margins. It dries up at the fringes and eventually it comes home to roost in the main primary asset classes. And that's something we're going to start to see, um, you know, as we get deeper into the spring and into the summertime. You know, let's say let's let's play this forward, right? In the most bullish near-term scenario, I can kind of paint. You know, let's say Ethereum and Bitcoin break out, and everyone's high-fiving at the Bitcoin conference, and the Ethereum 2.0 thing is a raging success, and S and P's back up at 47, 4800. You know, again, it's you know it's May, and it's time to sell in May and go away. And by the time you look underneath the hood in May, you're going to say, hey, well, look, breadth is not as good as it was two months ago. You know, kind of like altcoins aren't doing as well as we thought they would in this in this kind of quote unquote you know renewed crypto bull market. Like this is how it looks. You know, when you're talking about being in a structural bear market, as I believe we are still in. This is a structural bear market. There's no question about it. Um, if you look at kind of the, the you know kind of the trend in volatility, you look at the lack of breath. You look at the leadership within the market. I mean, two things. You know, another thing we haven't talked about yet. We're supposed to have going back to this elevated consensus expectation on growth. We're supposed to have this like post-pandemic services sector boom, right? Where there's all this cash on the sidelines that you know the government gave us, and we're going to spend all this money. And you know, you pull up a chart, a, a chart of leisure and hospitality stocks or airline stocks, and it's like, where in the hell is that post-pandemic service sector boom? Oh wait, it's not happening. Oh no, wait, Darius is probably going to be right on this below-trend growth slowdown. Oh no, wait, it's not just Darius; it's the whole freaking U.S. Treasury yield curve. <laughs> you know. And so I, I do yeah. believe those chickens are going to come home to roost, but they don't necessarily have to come home to roost tomorrow. Um, market's going to it's going to be a process. Well, Darius, in terms of the prices of the stocks, in terms of the yield curve, the they're just singing the song that you're absolutely right. Like the the hotel stocks are down, airline stocks are down, restaurant stocks, stocks are down. Are down. I mean, they're they're some of the worst charts in the market, and that to me yeah. is like that's a very negative signal if you're talking about. You know, uh, what would it be bottom? Uh, let's uh, not sure what the actual low of the market was intraday, but you know, let's call it whatever the most recent low was. You know, if you believe that was a durable market bottom, like I can put money to work with a six to 12 month view on that money, I think that the, you got to go back and check those charts that we just highlighted and say, hey, that, that that's probably a very big warning sign for that not being a durable bottom. So um, definitely see some, a lot of downside risks over the medium to longer term. Um, over the very near term, uh, you know, the coast, I wouldn't say the coast is clear because that might be misinterpreted when you put it in words, but I certainly don't see enough negative negativity forming in the very near term. And some of the few stocks, Darius, that are down more than those stocks you mentioned, the reopening stocks, in some cases, much more are the hyper growth technology names, the, the post-COVID, ARKK. Uh, you know, I think when we did our interview in late December, which aired in early January, you said one of your, one of your predictions was that Air KK, it's you know, it's it's easy. It's, you you sell Air KK and you buy Apple or something like that. Uh, how do you have you viewed that prediction to to play out? I think Apple probably down since then, but Air KK down 
so much more. And why do you think ARK is down? You know, my reason has to do with duration. I think it's kind of ARK is down for the same reason that TLT is down. It's, it's inflation. You maybe are a little bit more in the, the high beta camp. So just break us down how you've 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 seen um, this this huge bear market develop um, and just, you know the bull market sort of uh, incinerate um, in these technology stocks as well as your outlook on on the future. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's both a confluence of duration and also a fact that. High, whenever the market's going down or volatility's rising, you're going to have high beta securities, crypto, high beta stocks like ARKK or ARK, if you will. They're going to go down a lot more than the broader market. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. If high beta means it goes up a lot more than the broader market in the bull market and it goes down a lot more than the broader market in the bear market. I mean, that's as simple as that, um, you know, in summarizing the quantitative aspects of that, that characterization. So, yeah, and I mean, you know, we're still short ARKK. I'm very nervous about being short ARKK here, to be very frank. Um, because again, we're seeing the, some of those positive, um, you know, short-term market dynamics, you know, unfold in front of us, and I don't want to be caught short for what could be a multi-month squeeze. It's one thing to look at a chart and say the chart went from here to here and gloss your eyes over all the wiggles in the chart. It's another thing to actually backtest it, relate those movements in the chart to other movements in the economy and asset markets, understanding the timing with which variables are released in calendar terms, in economic terms, you know, on an ex-ante, out-of-sample basis. We actually have to construct those backtests. You realize man, this was not a linear path. Like like everybody got carted out from March to May 08. Nobody was able to stay in the trade from March to May 08. That was a massive bear market rally um, in March to May 08. You also got a massive one, um, I want to say, in, in, from November 08 to through January of 09 before the bottom fell out again. You know, you had these massive rallies in, in, in 2001, late 2001, um, you know, so, sorry, was it late, late 2000? Um, into into 2001, then you had another one in like early 2002 in that multi-year bear market. Like th you have these massive bear market rallies. And so you have to respect the fact that, hey, look, nothing happens in a straight line with respect to pricing in a cyclical upturn or a cyclical downturn. Bull markets correct, bear markets have rallies. And so we have to understand that and deal with that as investors and just not get too far out of our ski tips in terms of taking risk or reining in risk at various intervals. Yeah, so Darius, because you said you're short, I know that you know what ARKK did on FOMC day uh, six days ago. Yeah, ten <laughs> percent. Yeah, that was not fun. <laughs> that was yeah, not yeah. fun. That's example. Like, I don't know what's more brutal. You have a stock go up twenty percent when you're short in a single day, or is it more brutal to have it go twenty percent up over the course of a month or three months? No, you 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 you'd rather have it happen quickly, so it's up, yeah. so a signal can trigger quickly, so you can get out of position quickly. You don't want to, I mean, you can just bleed <laughs> over the course of many months and not really get the signal to ever exit the trade or, you know, either book it a gain, book it a smaller gain or book it at a loss. I mean, I just soon get out of a trade if the signal's changing and I just as soon find out that the signal's changing sooner rather than later. Mm. Darius, what do you think the yield curve looks like in a few months? Now it's, I mean, it's changed so much since we spoke last. Uh, the the 210 spread has, has flattened dramatically. The 35 spread has flattened. If you look at the forward market, some of them are actually in inversion now. Mm -hmm. A you lot of the cash people, market. I mean, like sevens, tens, fives, tens. You know, there's, there's 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 inversion coming, and you don't you typically don't see this kind of inversion. I was listening to a podcast with Jim Bianco recently, and I, he might have been on your program actually. <laughs> um, you know, he was saying, look, when this stuff happens. It, it's not like a one-off or this. You know, this this like. Oh, ha ha. Sorry, we inverted, but we didn't mean it. No, the whole curve is about to invert. The economy is about to go into a cyclical slowdown. There might be a recession on the back end of it. And oh, by the way, the markets are not done pricing that in yet. That's as simple as, it, as we can make it. And 
how do you think that, that plays out? Do you, do you think that the front end, let's say the two-year, has any further to go higher to price in more rate hikes? Or do you think it's the long end, the 10-year, the 30-year, that will go down to, you know, is it going to be a bull flattener or a bear flattener? And, and what would either of those cases indicate about asset markets? Uh, it'll probably be a bull flattener. Um, you know, so with the, there's likely to be, like, so let's talk about the next couple of Fed meetings. The next couple of Fed meetings, the Fed's probably, there's a risk that they're going to go 50 basis points. I happen to think they are going to go 50 basis points because we're going to get a March CPI report between now and the Fed meeting at the beginning of May. Uh, we'll get those two inflation reports and they're both going to say, guess what? Inflation momentum was unhinged in February and it's even more unhinged in March. Um, and so I think that's going to send a signal to the kind of the hawkish members of the board that, hey, look, we're right. We need to be moving faster, which, oh, by the way, is what Powell just confirmed um, in the in the NAB um, uh, presentation he gave on Monday. Um, so they're probably going to go 50. That going 50 um, and, you know, talking about QT, all that stuff might actually cause one final kind of repricing higher if you look at overnight index swap markets and forwards in that market and euro dollar futures and all that stuff you might get one more kind of push higher in terms of the two year but then from that point forward you're getting into may and june and july when the growth slowdown is really going to start to materialize at least according to our models it's going to be very difficult for the long end of the curve to continue to back up for rates in the long end of the curve continue to back up from that point sorry why is it harder for long-term rates to back up because because gr the growth slowdown will start to become more present to more investors, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe as well. And so the longer end of the curve is more quick to react to changes in the economy because those changes in the economy have a longer lead time in terms of feeding into um, um, po policymaker decision making. And so the 30 year will say, hey, look, the economy's slowing. I know the Fed will pivot at some point in the next kind of year or so. So let me start moving. And then the 10 year will start moving. And then the seven-year will start moving. And then the five-year will start moving. And then the two-year will start moving. That's how that process will work. Um, so there could be a time, there could be a moment in time this summer where you have bonds rallying in price, but you still have the twos and maybe even out to fives um, holding in and holding up in terms of price or holding up in terms of yield. And uh, how, you know, a 710 spread, I hadn't heard of that before. But I was talking, I, and I thought that the reason I hadn't heard of that before is because I'm, I'm young, I haven't been in the markets, but I was talking to Harley Bassman, you know, who founded the, the Move Index, and Joseph Wang, who's a former senior Fed trader, and they're saying, 710 spread, that's that's not a thing. No, it's uh, not, it's not is, a thing. Is, yeah, it's not. Yeah, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. But it, but it is something that can presage a 210 spread, and that is definitely a thing. Yeah, exactly. It's only a thing in the sense that, hey, when this happens, the thing we actually care about, which is the 210 spread, and, and more aptly, the, the three-month, 10-year uh, spread, when those, when the 710 happens, inverts, and all these other threads inverts, it typically means that this other runs, the ones we actually care about are going to invert. And so that that's what I meant by that comment. I'm not saying go in. Don't, please, please don't go out there and watch the 710 spread. I mean, you, you'd be better off watching paint dry and eating pizza. Yeah, the threes tens, when that thing inverts, you know you're headed to recession. Like, there's no, there's just, yeah. there is no if ands, buts about it. We're obviously a long ways away in terms of that. But obviously, twos, tens, as narrow as it is, is telling you that if the Fed stays on this course, they're going to get there, right? And they're probably going to get there sometime in the first half of, of, of next year. And so um, unless they speed up, um, you know, kind of speed up uh, interest rate hikes much faster than we anticipate, or or guess what? The long end of the curve really starts to rally in the back half of the year while the Fed is, guess what, still out the lunch. And this goes back to our, our central thesis on, on asset markets, and um, which is, look, the inflation's gonna come down but it's going to remain elevated relative to both consensus and the Fed's forecast. And as a function of inflation coming down, 
the Fed is going to remain engaged in tightening monetary policy. But guess what? The Fed is unfortunately going to have to tighten monetary policy until something breaks because inflation is not going to come down fast enough until before. It's not going to come down to a level that's acceptable before something breaks. So that, in our opinion, is why asset markets have to be the conduit, have to be provide the feedback to the FOMC board to say, hey, look, stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. Because guess what? If we get a recession, all those price concerns that we have, all that inflation we're, we're worrying about and whining about right now, it's gone. Inflation kills inflation. And so eventually we expect asset markets to tell the Fed, hey, look, we're on the precipice of the cliff. Please stop tightening. You're going to push us over the cliff. And I believe that process is probably at least a couple of quarters away, if not three or four. Recession kills inflation, but how long does it take to kill inflation? What if the European Union sanctions Russian oil and natural gas, and then also, so that you know drives oil to $180. And also, by the way, you have a sort of a housing cycle where uh, they only measure the, the shelter, the owner equivalent rent, uh, one sixth of a time, you, you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Uh, so, so that what you know, like uh, it's it's already sort of baked in that we're going to have you know higher housing things, and that we get a CPI of 10 percent even as we do 50 basis points after 50 basis points after 50 basis points. Is that anywhere in in your sort of calculation? Absolutely not. If we go in a recession, inflation's coming down, man. <laughs> so, it, so things like let's go. Let's start by saying, hey, look. Inflation is a lagging indicator. Wage inflation is the most lagging indicator, followed by actual inflation. Um, those things tend to peak, it you know, just ahead of or in recession. So we know that inflation, you know, when the recession starts, and we'll never be able to say when it actually starts until you know they come back and tell us and give us the official dates. The NBAR does that, um, but we can we can we have clues. We have our indicators, obviously PMIs and things like that. We can kind of guess, um, you know. So when inflate when inflation recession starts. And again, we're talking about recession like it's a certainty, right? If the markets go down by 35% and tell the Fed to stop quantitative tightening and, and hiking interest rates, we might not get a recession, right? So let's be let's be very clear about that. Really? So you think the faster the market falls, the less likely we have a recession? Yeah, not not just the faster, but the sooner. Yeah, yeah. If, they, if the markets wait till late Q4 or early Q1 of next year to tell the Fed to stop hiking interest rates and quantitative tightening, then it's very very likely we get a recession. If the Fed, If the markets tell the Fed to stop doing that in the fall... Then probably we can avoid a recession. So it just really it depends on you know how quickly will market participants you know get spooked by the growth outlook enough to say hey look I got to sell stocks I got to remove my participation from this asset class I got to go buy bonds I got to go do a bunch of things that send a signal to the Fed that the whole world is concerned about a real recession and I think eventually at that point at that at a certain price in the S and P which again you know our models are saying somewhere around down thirty uh, percent from the all time high. Is that is that is that pivot point for the power? You know, Darius, I've been following your work for a long time. You typically speak in you know very quantitative, rigorous, probabilistic terms that do not lend themselves easily to narratives. I, I have to say, Darius, right right now you're probably you're definitely not certain. You're not certain about anything, but you're probably the the least uncertain or the most certain uh, ever. That's the way that you sound, at least right now. Would that be be fair to say? You know, over over the past year, year and a half, that. You sound pretty convinced that you know in six months the S and P five hundred will be will be lower. Like what? How are you sort of handicapping it? You know, how surprised would you be if the S and P five hundred is at five thousand? Oh yeah, no. So pretty uh, convinced in six months that S and P will be lower. That that is, I mean, there's no guarantee on that. I, I don't I'm not convinced of anything in financial markets terms. I'm convinced of our views. I'm convinced of our forecasts, and I'm convinced of you know the market's historical responses to these types of impulses. 
And so if the market has any sort of reasonable response to the types of impulses that we're forecasting from a growth, inflation policy and positioning perspective, then it's very likely we have those adverse outcomes in markets. But, you know, there's no certainty at all. I mean, I've been doing this for long enough to know that you're a fool if you try to put, you know, price targets out there. Or, you, know, you, you know, that's just not how this business works. It's not how the, the game works. But the reality is, yeah, I am very, very confident because, again, we, you know, we, I think we do as good as a, we, I think we have as good as a handle on, on sort of studying longer term economic cycles as anybody, as good as understanding of marrying that to markets as anybody. And, you know, quite frankly, that we don't see these setups very often. Right, like March of 09 only comes around every you know so often. There's not there's not that many March of 09s in the chart. You know, you pull the chart back 100 years. You know, there's not that many sort of let's call it uh you know 99 2000s. You know, if you pull the chart back 100 years, so you know there's a lot of things that are sort of coming together right now in this particular juncture that are pretty historic. Um, and I don't want to mince words about it. They were historic to the upside again, going back to when we were super. I was as as bearish as I sound now. You you'll fact check me on this. I was equally as I bullish. I sounded equally yes, as bullish back then. Yeah. Fact is, actually, I remember where I was when I was editing the video. Yeah, exactly. Like, Damn, Darius is pretty bullish. Yeah, no, no, not pretty bullish. Bombastically bullish. And yes, so, yes. Yeah, exactly. Now I'm bombastically bearish. And so again, it's just a lot of it's just the mirror. It's, it's all rate of change process. It's all understanding where you are in these longer term cycles. And we're unfortunately in a very like precarious place on across a lot of various indicators. And not the least of which is a Federal Reserve that may be in a new regime relative to the one we just exited. Mm. And, and so I asked you earlier, where can investors find you know, safe harbor if bonds won't act as a hedge any longer? You said com commodities. I think you said oil. You also said VIX futures. Uh, but you can't have medium a commodity term. that's you know, what you say. Medium term VIX futures, not medium not, term VIX futures. You, yeah. you know that those can only comprise a small percentage of a portfolio because yeah. you know they tend to have a, a negative absolute return. Definitely in the case of, of VIX futures, uh, is it just the case if you have to do some sort of not sixty forty, but you know you you add your special sauce on it, but it is still like you add in some stocks and you own some bonds and maybe you you do go into low beta, but it sounds like returns on financial assets, expected returns on financial assets, are just lower than under other terms. Is, is that is that right? They should be lower, right? We're starting yeah. from a very high valuation. We're heading into a negative cyclical environment. We're heading into a negative structural environment. If you think about some of the supply shortages that might persist in commodities, you think about a Federal Reserve and an ECB that are no longer going to be holding our hands at every, you know, kind of wiggle in the stock market. You know, th this is a very different setup. Um, so if you think about it from an asset allocation perspective, you know, and again, I think risk managing sort of the, 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 the very near term is a little bit different than risk managing the medium to long term. Uh, you know, if you focus on the medium to long term, obviously cash is going to be a meaningful allocation to your portfolio. Like when you run out of stuff to buy, <laughs> the natural residual is, 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 is having a elevated cash balance. And so don't, don't forget as an investor out there, particularly again, this, I'm speaking to retail investors here, you don't have to be a hero. If you didn't make enough money when Darius was bombastically bullish from fall of 20 through the middle of 2020 or through the fall of 2021, I'm sorry, you just missed it. You can't make it up now. There's no, there's no way to make it up now. Markets are going, you know, they're, they're, they're in a very, um, you know, they're in a higher volatility state. It's just not going to be easy to make money. So ultimately, if you don't have real sort of thoughtful uses of your cash, you know, real thoughtful ways to kind of play this. And again, I think that list of thoughtful kind of uses of cash is really narrow in this particular environment that I'm talking about. Then you have to have more cash. And if you're an institutional investor, obviously the name of the game in institutional finance is just you know high grading, you know uh, your credit quality, you know going up capital structure, uh, going uh, up the, the sort of the market capitalization structure, you know going into defensive um, you know sector style factors and things of that nature. It's that's pretty straightforward. 
I think it's harder when you actually have to make decisions on being in or out of whole asset classes. What sector do you think will uh, are you the least constructive on? Uh, there's, let's see, you can choose from the, the consumer discretionary, I guess, which is sort of the hotels and, and stuff. Uh, but then there's also technology, which has not been performing well uh, either. Uh, what, what, what are you most bearish on in terms of sectors? Uh, so I'll sector, if we're talking about GICs level one, um, I would probably say financials. Financials is probably the worst place to be if in this kind of environment, flattening yield curve, cyclical slowdown, potential recession, Fed nowhere near bailing you out. Like that's just not a good environment for the financials. Um, from a from a industry perspective, um, I don't believe that you know we are very much sort of taking the under on the consensus expectation that we're going to have the services sector boom, a big U.S. economic boom in 2022. If anything, we think there's a high probability of a, a slowdown to a below trend state by the end of the year. Um, so we'll take you know we'll be short you know various sectors and segments within consumer. To take advantage of that, but then I also I'm concerned about my friend Kathy Wood because on one hand, you know we do believe bond yields are going to peak at some point this summer in the springtime or in the early summer and you know really start to go down, but they'll be going down alongside the stock market, and that's not an environment where you're going to want to go buy a high beta mid cap growth stock um, as Kathy Wood is you know levered long to, to the gills. So you know I, I really feel for her. We're just not at the place in the point of the broader economic and market cycle where you're going to want to back the truck up on those types of exposures. So, you know, I, I just as soon think that, you know, we could see another 30 to 40 percent decline in ARC before this is all said and done, unfortunately. And I, I really do like Kathy. I think she's a nice person. So I don't wish that on her and her team. But, uh, you know, it just is what it is. <laughs> and Darius, within the world of fixed income, what do you like? What do you not like? You know, there's the short end, which I guess the ETF would be shy, which is, I guess, one to three year treasury bills. I think that that has been taking on a lot of pain. It's not that volatile, but you know those rates have been going up every single day. And then there's a the long end. There's the belly. Uh, there's there's credit. There, there's high yield, investment grade. How are you sort of thinking that that blend? Yeah. So I mean, generally speaking, when you're trying to position for a growth slowdown or or you know trend you know, or simultaneous deceleration in growth and inflation, as we are you know set up to experience in the back half of this year, you're going to want to be in duration. Duration is kind of the best play there. Um, or a levered sort of um, play on the, the short end as well. Um, I think it's too soon to play for the short end because, again, I, I don't think the Fed is going to back off of tightening until the market tells it to back off of tightening. And so I think you're going to you know, you're going to miss the opportunity that you could actually make money uh, with being long long bond as opposed to being long the, the short end. But generally speaking, if we're heading into something that looks like a recession and the Fed is about to cut rates as, oh, by the way, the euro dollar curve and the OIS curve have both you know, have that inversion priced in. Um, when the Fed is about to cut rates, then we, the best thing you can do is lever up the short end of the curve. There's no better return in financial markets. Darius, uh, my final question is about China. You mm -hmm. recently wrote that Beijing must follow through on its rhetorical policy shift. And if not, FXI and KWEB are toast. FXI mm -hmm. and KWEB being ETFs that own baskets of Chinese stocks. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, going back to our crowding analysis, we were to, so let me start by saying, so a couple weeks ago, uh, the, the sort of uh, China Financial Stability and, and Development Commission or whatever, uh, Li Hua, who's the, you know, kind of the economic czar of China, if you will, came out of that uh, meeting and said, hey, look, we need to do more things to support the Chinese stock market. Uh, and that catalyzed a massive, like, you know, squeeze and, and, you know, kind of, you know, the arc of China, basically K-Web, uh, for lack of a better, uh, for lack of a better exposure, um, you know, the catalyzed a massive squeeze in a lot of these sort of overly shorted, under-owned under um, Chinese uh, equity assets. 
they didn't follow that up with actual easing. It was really just a rhetorical kind of pivot to say that they want to say support those things. And so, you know, we went back and did a lot of work. We, you know, we do a ton of work on China already. Um, we went back and kind of, you know, refreshed the models on some of these, um, you know, kind of rhetorical policy pivots we've seen in China in recent years. And, you know, going back to 2008, 2009, uh, we saw one in 2011 through that, you know, persisted into 2012. Saw one in 2015 that persisted into 2016. Saw one in 2018 that persisted into 2019, and then saw one uh, in the spring of 2020. Of those five instances, only one, which is the 2011 to 2012, was a sort of buy the rumor kind of event. Um, you typically, what you want to find in China is you want to see the actual easing take place, um, in which you know tends to happen over a span of multiple months, if not multiple quarters, before it, the sort of you know kind of positive effects are really felt. Um, you know, kind of broadly in the global economy and in global equities and things of that nature. So um, this is why I say, hey, look, Beijing's got to fall through on this because, you know, there's been this massive short covering trade in, in Chinese equities as a function of this rhetorical pivot. But if you actually study the cycles historically, that rhetorical shift is usually not the buy signal. The buy signal is when the PBOC is actually out there supporting growth, you know, by expanding its balance sheet or by cutting policy rates, cutting reserve requirement ratios, cutting prime lending rates, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're not doing that stuff yet. In fact, um, this Monday was pretty disappointing as it relates to the loan prime rate um, targets. They actually didn't change those rates at all. So, you know, the PBOC's monetary policy setting is still decidedly neutral. It's been decidedly neutral for an extended period of time. Um, and it's going to remain decidedly neutral until we see something different. And right now we haven't seen anything different. Darius, it's been great having you on Forward Guidance. Before you go, can you just tell us a little bit about 42 Macro, why you started it, and you know what you offer to, to investors? Oh, I, think, I appreciate you, Jack. And it's been awesome to be on. I love connecting with you, my friend. Um, so kind of the nut, 42 Macro in a nutshell, man, I, I, the reason we started this firm is, you know, I don't believe, my partners don't believe that institutional investors deserve a clear informational advantage, a clear timing advantage, a clear profit and loss advantage, you know, relative to retail investors. You know, Wall Street is sort of built on kind of these maintaining these gates, these very high cost, high regulation gates on information and process and things that help you make money across economic and financial market cycles. And I don't believe in those gates. I don't I, I want to make sure that, you know, the average Joe on the street has the same opportunity to make money in financial markets that, you know, some big major hedge fund. Because, again, it's all always boils down to understanding where you are in the market cycle understanding where you are in the economic cycle, marrying those two factors together to ultimately produce good outcomes for your portfolio. And I don't believe that is something that should be sort of, you know, embargoed for, you know, kind of, you know, high price, you know, institutional clients. I believe that everyone deserves that kind of information. And that's why we democratize it. Well, Darius, thank you so much. Um, and uh, looking forward to having you on back soon. Absolutely, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Darius, when, when uh, you come back, the 10 year was either going to be at five or negative five. <laughs> No, it'll probably be back at two if I had to guess. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, and uh, thank you, everyone.